When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome everyone and welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about, you guessed it, games, and I'm here with my great friend and co-host, Mark Bigney. How are you today? I'm very well, Walker, although I have an admission to make. That is that I have a very, very fixed agenda for today. Uh Uh-oh. I would like to talk about games with you. Wow. Yeah. That sounds like fun. So should we should we junk what we were planning before? Yes. All right. So we're going to talk about board games this week. We're going to talk about the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, the Eurus. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then our topic, which is Dexterity Games Revisited. You know, I've had a lot of thoughts and feels about Dexterity Games, and I realized that looking back over our catalog, it's been a long time since we last talked about Dexterity Games as a topic, which is to say, episode two was the last time we talked about it. Oh, uh, episode two. Yes, I remember. Memories. I had hopes and dreams then. Memories. You still had hair. It was a whole thing. <laughs> it was a thing. It was a whole thing. So, what was our Eurus, Walker? What did we review last year? Exactly one year ago, we reviewed a game called Gollum. This is designed by... Flaminia Brasini, Virginio Gili, and Simone Luciani. And it's put out by Cranio Creations, right? They're hot off their barrage. They come out with Gollum. It's this very interesting sort of uh, marble tower drop into action selection, build a Gollum, move up the track type game. I remain consistently disappointed at the fact that they took an interesting theme and then ran away from it. Because the the original Golem of Prague, upon which this game is nominally based, was about defending local population from a pogrom. And instead, they just made it some sort of generic, sort of, you're building golems to do various Euro gamey stuff. And it's like, eh. As I've said a number of times, and I will say a number of times before, when you're making a Euro game, you can make it about whatever you want. And I like a lot of historical themes, but I don't understand the point of situating it in a historical theme and then running away from that theme. But, that having been said... It's more like the Golems were running away and you were chasing them. Yes, there's that too. Yeah, I mean, look, there was there, there were some thematic elements. This idea that your potency in various rabbinical magics determined whether or not you could control the creations that you had. And you could have Golems that were too effective and you couldn't effectively give them orders. That that was cool. Uh, but the, the thematic inconsistency and consequently the vague ookiness that that engendered Coupled with the fact that this was not one of my preferred uh, Italian designs is one of the reasons why I haven't felt the need to go back. I've gone back a couple times. I've kept it in my collection and will remain in my collection because I do enjoy it. You're upgrading golems. You has that, like I said, the action selection of, you know, do I want to reset the tower? Do I want to add cubes? Do I want to just take the hit here and make somebody else do it? All of those things. Very interesting in golem. 
yeah, if you've played any of the games by these designers before, you know, part of the Italian masters, they don't tend to produce bad games. It's just in a universe of better games by the Italian masters and games with better executed themes, I'm happy to, to pass Colin beside, though I completely understand why you'd want to keep it. I mean, the marble drop is kind of cool. You literally drop marbles into various tracks, and that determines what how, how efficient various actions are. The main reason, Mark, is because the cover deeply disturbs my wife, and every so often I'll, I'll face it out towards, so it's like glaring as the, she walks into the room and scares, no. Thus endeth the inaugural and last marriage advice segment of So Very Wrong About Games. That was the game we reviewed last year, Golem, or Gollum. Now on to the games we played last week. Walker, what did you play last week? Mark, Louis wanted to play Anachrony, and we are more than happy to do what Louis says. Louis speaks, and we move. It was a very strange conversation, because we just finished having a discussion about the kind of games that Louis tends to like, not in his presence, just because we do actually internalize the burden of foisting a whole bunch of new games onto people constantly, and you do have to be conscious of the preferences of the people you play with. And Louis' preferences, broadly speaking, he, his, his origins are in the historical wargaming community, both in terms of tabletop miniatures and in terms of, of other stuff. Like, when I think of a new GMT game, I think, oh, would Louis enjoy this? That's, what, that's one of the things that I consider. On occasion, there are some Euros that he enjoys a great deal, but by and large, that's not his bag. And partially by virtue of this, we're like, oh, okay, well, Louis is going to be playing with us. Let's ask him what he'd like to play. And he said, oh, I'd really like to play Anachrony. And we were all like, uh, 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 sure. <laughs> I think we could cover that. No problem. Yes. So we played with the Pioneers of New Earth module. For the first time. For the first time. The base game, the base game has kickstarted. It's, it's pretty complicated now, but there are a whole bunch of mini modules that came in the first wave of Anachrony content. There's the Doomsday module, Pioneers of New Earth. We had play, I had played Doomsday a few years ago, but we'd never played Pioneers of New Earth and we selected that because it's the module where you can upgrade your mechs and go send them to go kill and explore things in the radi radiated wasteland. It's not actually much of, it's no PvP. It actually works a little bit like Caverna's adventure mechanism, right? You have a strength of thing, you send it off to go adventure, you get a Benny. It's a little more thematic, but not a whole heck of a lot than how it works in Caverna. It's like pinata bu busting. <laughs> Precisely. What did you think of Pioneers of New Earth specifically and our play of Anachrony more generally? Oh, I liked it. It was, it, you know, it didn't add a lot of rules grit, and it was something interesting. You had a little sideboard where you dedicated cubes, and it was different for every player. They yes. can do it in different ways. And not only that, it also interacted with the, what are those different shapes called? The scientist shapes. Ah, uh, yes. The breakthroughs. The breakthroughs. So it also interacted with the breakthroughs. You could put the breakthroughs on the mech, which gave you sensors, which let you draw more cards. So you got to choose which particular battle you're going to fight. And it was a, a good way to get more stuff. Once you got your mech to a decent strength, then you could just send a guy over there and bust a pinata up and you could get, you know, power cores, minerals, all sorts of different things. I liked it. I agree with you that it didn't add much in terms of rules grit. And when you're playing a game like Anachrony, that, that is a bit of a priority. Uh, it did, however, make the worker placement a little less tight. And I do prefer in worker placement games for things to be as tight as possible. So the fact that there was just this additional space that people could go to. Now, as it happens, both Huey and myself completely ignored the the mech pinata, as you put it. So it wasn't of considerable impact. But all told, that was a minor dampening on my enjoyment of that. 
And this is relevant because my preferred way to play Anachrony is with Fractures of Time. That's where you have a time machine off to the side. And I had thought, mistakenly, that this was by and large the group's preferred way to play. Uh, But both you and Huey had the same declaration, which came as a great shock to me, which was... That we hadn't completely internalized the time machine quite so much yet. Yeah, that I I thought that, you know, Anachrony is not a simple game, but I thought that we all, more or less, after we get the refresher, it's one of those things where we play, you know, once or twice a year, broadly. Uh, It is also, for what it's worth, also worth mentioning that every time we pull out Anachrony for that one or twice a year, we all say, why don't we play this more often? Because, (laughs) like, oh, I remember how great this is. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, it's in a huge box. There are lots of modules. It sprawls a bit. It's a, it's a little dense. So so there's a little bit of a barrier to getting there. But once it's there, everyone's happy. There's a lot going on. Yes. Right? And so we got, I understand the blinking part and, and most of the basic actions. Yeah, the fractures of time, yeah. But the yeah. other stuff, how it, how it all interacts, who knows? Because you, you have to, like, go back in time and then you, you need all those different shapes. And I, don't, I, have, I think I have yet to ever make a, a super tech in this game. Oh, a super project. Super project. Yes. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. I agree with you that the Fractures of Time module is perhaps uh, one or two details too many. I should mention for what it's worth that the Fractures of Time expansion is a review copy. The base game and everything else is stuff that we bought. Specifically, the technology cards. One of the things that Fractures of Time introduces is an entire new deck of goodies that you can buy. That, to me, is the one note too many. That's the part where it's like, but you can't. It's all part of the same. It's not another mini module. It's all part of the same module. I just really like the blinking mechanism. For those of you that I haven't heard before, the blinking mechanism in Anachrony is where you play fewer rounds, but with a new kind of resource, you can take a worker and have them simultaneously have done two things at once by virtue of time machine. And then there's some possible downsides of that. Your time machine isn't upgraded enough. And yeah, there are, there are extra rules. And I had underestimated the extent to which that el- extra element of rules grit uh, took you and Huey in particular out of the game. I knew that Louis uh, found it to be a little bit too much, which is why, given that this was kind of Louis's gig, I was like, well, what? how do you want to play, Louis? And he's like, ooh, combat? I'll take it. Uh, but... I, I would like to return back to Fractures of Time in the future. I do think it's worth making more of an effort to get these Mind Clash games to the table because they're, they're the, the ones we like, we really like, specifically Anachrony and Voidfall, Cerebria as well. Cerebria is a, a very personal preference of mine. And it was great to go back to Anachrony. I had a great time. Yeah, the, the blinking really introduces that sort of trying to extend the the your turn as long as possible because yes. you're hoping someone's going to blink out of an action spot that you want to use. So it's like, oh, I, I managed to, you know, muddle my workers through the actions and finally they've decided to move out of that building space. Now I can get in there. I really enjoy that part. Yeah, the tempo considerations are, are great. Yeah. And again, thematically in Anachrony, uh, the, the, the time travel element, it's more or less elaborated loans in the base game. With the blinking, it really does feel a little bit more like you're leaning into the hard sci-fi time travel element, especially when you're managing your time machine and managing another way in which you are messing with the timeline creates literal glitches in the case of that. But anyway, uh, suffice to say, there are a number of different ways to play Anachrony. I'm not a huge fan of the Doomsday module. I think it's a little overbaked and 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 it requires the right mindset. But But Pioneers of New Earth was, as you say, very simple to add. I was relatively pleased with how it worked out, misgivings aside. Anachrony. Anachrony by David Tsertse, published by Mind Clash Games. I played Welcome to the Moon. Welcome to the Moon is a roll and write by Alexia Allard and Benoit Chupin. This is a review copy we got from the distributor. 
and I was just curious to see what it had done with the formula. I'm not a huge fan of roll and writes, and uh, but I do like seeing systems evolve. And I do think, and I mean this sincerely, it sounds like a joke, uh, and actually it's it's one of the reasons why Quinn's doesn't really talk to me anymore. Uh, I think Welcome 2 is one of the worst things that ever happened to the hobby. <laughs> and so far, the original Welcome 2, in that, again, if you're going to make a Euro, you can make it about anything. Why are you lionizing the development of suburbs in the 1950s with swimming pools? The environmental and social problems of suburbanization in 1950s America could fill several nonfiction books. Oh, yes, look at that. They did. Anyway, and so for, you know, European designers to be like, ooh, 1950s suburb. No, toxic counter narrative. Let us acknowledge them for the evils that they were. I'm not, for the record, castigating people who grew up in the suburbs or people who moved to the suburbs. That is not what I'm doing. Not even remotely. Plus, it was sort of one of the first big roll and rights. I do not like roll and rights. The the lack of player interaction, the sense that you're just filling out a spreadsheet, just not for me. And welcome to the moon. To its credit, does a good job of showing you different kinds of spreadsheets. There's a whole bunch of different scenarios, and they're all wildly different. The amount of differentiation is quite impressive. Now, consequently, for a game that's more or less as simple as Welcome 2, every time you sit down to play a new scenario, it's kind of like relearning the rules from scratch. So it's a surprising amount of rules grit for a relatively simple game. But Welcome to the Moon does some interesting things with the formula. For example, and this is kind of a spoiler, I guess, if you care, because it's kind of presented as a campaign and like, ooh, there's a narrative. There's not really much of a narrative. You're going to the moon. That yeah, is about as much narrative as there is in the crew, which is to say hardly any. In the second mission, you have this really, 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 really long track that you need to fill in. But there are only numbers 1 to 15, and you cannot duplicate numbers, and you cannot go backwards. But there's more than 15 spaces. How do you do it? Well, there's another action you can do to bust up the track. And the tempo of this is interesting, because it's not like you're going to get numbers 1 to 15 and then do the action to chop up the track. You're chopping up the track as you're filling in various elements of the track. I thought that was really cool, and very, very much more interesting than your standard sort of welcome to spreadsheeting, or that's so clever... Uh, any of the clever series spreadsheeting. It was kind of neat, not exactly thematic, but it's something that I hadn't really seen done before in terms of manipulation of numbers in this game series. So I appreciated that. That having been said, you're still very much in a welcome to mindset where you're pulling a whole bunch of cards, you're just filling in numbers. But I do like that they decided to play with it. Now, they uh, they can still play with it yet further. Like I really, if you really want to see what roll and rights can be, I would point you to my favorite roll and write game, which is say Vengeance Roll and Fight. Which is like, what if we used a basic roll and write formula? Number one, make it real time, which obviously isn't to everyone's cup of tea. But number two, use the roll and write results not to fill in a spreadsheet, but to power kind of a tactical combat puzzle. You can you can have these numbers do anything you want. Why are we so fixated on the idea of filling out a spreadsheet? I don't get it. Some people really like that part. That's fine. It's just not my bag. Combos. Yeah, combos are great. I really like combos. But just in terms of, ooh, I got that five so I can smack it right between that four and that six. Ooh. Anyway, but if you're going to do a Welcome To game, I think Welcome to the Moon does more interesting things with the system than the previous ones. Uh, so I did find it pleasing in that sense. So Welcome to the Moon is probably one of my preferred versions of the, you know, endless. I, I didn't like Vegas. I didn't like the, the the base version for a whole bunch of reasons. There's still no player interaction to speak of, really. Uh, there's a couple get to things first. Com- that's better than nothing. And it's certainly in line with a lot of other contemporary heroes. So I have to say that Welcome to the Moon was a pleasant surprise, but I came in with zero expectations. 
It's also a very nice production. You know, every every board has its own. We weren't every scenario has its own board, and so it's not minor graphical detail. It's an entirely different board in its entirety. And so. a board for enough like four players. Yes, enough boards for everybody. However, I will note that the dry erase markers that it comes with do not have erasers on them. Minor ding on the components there. Anyhow, that's Welcome to the Moon by Alexis Allard and Benoit Turpin. Mark and I got General Orders World War II back to the table. This is by Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson, put out by Offspray Games. And this is a two-player worker placement tactical World War II game. And this is a review copy we got from the publisher. And I think we had just as much fun as the first time with all the same caveats of these cards being painful. <laughs> so what you're doing is you're placing, you have your five action pawns to start and you're putting them, there's a board to the side that let you do all sorts of different actions. You can also place them on the board in order to move your units. And that's the sort of hook to the game. So if I move, uh, if there's a completely empty sector, I can move my units there by placing an action token in the movement spot of that territory. And now that that action spot is taken, the opponent cannot move in there this turn. So it's this odd timing mechanism. And the sideboard that has actions has a better action and a worse action. And so the timing of which is the most important thing that you need to do now. Do I need to degenerate troops? Do I need to get into that territory before they do? Do I need to fill these action spots? Do I want to draw more of these cards? All of that is there but then you have the cards and that's where the problem begins. <laughs> yeah. So let me just elaborate a little bit more on the worker placement element of general orders, because I, I'm having difficulty remembering the last time very straightforward worker placement was done as well as general orders world war two, because you said it's a little odd to have this notion that, uh, you know, a territory could be blocked, but what that does is two things. It's a gamey convention but it's extraordinarily satisfying in terms of gameplay for two reasons. Number one, it really, really makes the tempo considerations brutally important. So turn order really matters. It really matters where you go first. And in a lot of worker placement games, it doesn't. Worker placement can be fine. It's like, oh, I'll go and I'll prioritize things. But the tighter a worker placement game goes, the more you really feel like I want to do these three things all at once, the more I appreciate it. And General Orders really leans into that. Every action, the timing is crucially, crucially important. And number two, in terms of how the worker placement is really done well, as married to a very simple sort of troops on a map kind of game, is that you don't have the a, a strange kind of gaminess of another type, which is to say, I move in with my forces, but then you just show up later. Nobody wants to be the first mover. You end up with these weird Zugzwang elements in a lot of fighting type games. Historical war games, miniatures games, you name it. And that completely avoids it. If you need to get there, you need to get there first. And you're kind of safe. So let's talk about the cards. <laughs> let's talk about the combat very first. Okay, sure. Because I have to do that. You know, you want to talk about something, I got to change it to something That's else. the rule. I mean, that that is your role, yeah. Yeah, well, the, the combat system is just so great, right? You, you, uh... Because you can't place a movement token pawn into an area where you already have troops so they can be attacked. So you move in and then the defender gets a roll of some dice and you're going to lose some guys. And then it's just the, you know, the balancing off. If I come in with three and uh, I have three left and you have two left, then I'm going to have one left. We, Precisely. we both lose two. One to one attrition. One to one attrition. And it's done. Quick, easy. Great. Absolutely, yeah. And it's worth stressing, General Orders is about 20 minutes. 
which is amazing. The quality of decision-making in 20 minutes is is unparalleled almost, I think. And the die result, just for what it's worth, is uh, a zero, a two, and the rest of the results are one. So generally speaking, your average result of the die is one. It's very simple. It's easy to comprehend. The cards. The cards bother me, I think, primarily by virtue of how they contrast with how clean, tight, and, and borderline perfect everything else is. Because, as you say, you move into a combat and you you spent the time, you spent the tempo consideration to get in there, you forsook other things to do, and someone's got, oh, I've got the ambush card, I'm not rolling one die in defense, I'm rolling three. And it's like, eh. The cards seem to wield an outsized influence on the game. And in general orders, given that the, the, there's already the tension of what to pick in terms of tempo, I'm not sure I like the idea that the cards seem to give you an additional kick, uh, not a nudge, but a strong kick towards playing to what cards you've pulled. Granted, it's an action to go pull cards, but it's not a thing you want to ignore ever. And I don't know, I'm, I'm not in the business of fixing games, and it's a good thing I'm not because I, I don't know what I'm doing. But I think I might be happy if there were more of them and they were less powerful. Because then I, I would feel like, well, I could save this for later, or I could do something else that's more important, or what have you, or I could use it for its secondary effect to reroll dice. Yeah, that's the weird part, because you'd never do that, because the cards are so powerful with their main ability. Yeah. Why would you ever waste them on rerolling dice? In theory, yeah, you can ditch a card to reroll any number of dice. And, and, and to a certain extent, that safety valve has to exist, because they are explicitly tied to a specific action. And if you pull them in the last round, there's only four rounds, and if you pull them in the last round and say you, you pull the artillery strike card, and you've already done your artillery strike that round, well then, it's useless. So there has to be some kind of use for them, I guess. But as you say, you would never, given the choice, ever use them to reroll dice. I have to assume that was why they were why the reroll option was put in, not because you'd ever do it voluntarily, but if you didn't have anything else to do. Yeah, I don't know. I, I it's tough for me to tell whether I object to the cards because they're actually wielding a disproportionate influence, or if it's just the juxtaposition of the sublime near perfection of the base game conjoined with the feel bad arbitrariness of oh my artillery strike is rolling four dice now sucks to be you. It's like, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's tough to tell. Does it keep me from enjoying the game? No. It is just a weird thing that happens once or twice over the course of a playing where I just think, mm, I would rather that didn't work that way. Which is not an experience I'm accustomed to when playing games by Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson. But there it is. I guess I guess I just have to put this in the same category as in Undaunted, sometimes the dice do weird things. So I guess I'm going to have to say, when playing General Orders, sometimes the cards are going to ruin a, a well-laid plan. That's General Orders World War II by Offspring Games. We get to play Sail. I am not going to subject you to the terrible experience of my singing. I've got the song Sail by AWOL Nation stuck in my head, which consists mostly of someone shouting, Sail. Sail was designed by Akiyama Koryu and Korzu Yusei, published by All Play last year, and it is one of the many sort of quirky trick-taking games that have come out of Asia over the past few years, and it is a two-player cooperative trick-taking game with a charming spatial element. You've got this boat, you got to get the boat to a specific part of the destination, and to grossly oversimplify things, if you play the right cards, the, the boat is going to move forward, but on a diagonal towards the direction of whoever won the trick. You smatter some terrain around, and with the proviso that the round ends immediately once somebody has won four tricks, and there you go. That's most of the tension you already need, and it's gloriously charming. I'm a big fan of Sail. I wasn't really sold by uh, the Fox of the Forest duet, 
didn't really do much for me. I, I mean, I thought it was clever, like, but it was a proof of concept. You know, this is what a two-player cooperative trick-taking game can look like. Sale, I think, is really the manifestation of a promise because it shows how you can use trick-taking as an engine to do other things. The, the spatial element is not huge. It's just, roughly speaking, contours the kind of trick you want to have at a given moment. And it puts everybody on the same page, as it were, about what tricks need to be won and where. And there's a couple of weirdnesses about remembering how damage works and the cannon effects are a little weird. You need the reference card. You need the reference card in front of you, long and short of it. But the reference card does the job for you. It's quick. It's charming. Easy to teach. Super tiny box. Super tiny. Super tiny. It's what they call chibi. It's, 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 it's very chibi. Sale. Yeah. Multiple mechanisms. It's got this neat sort of pandemic-y sort of feel of feeding cards into the Kraken so they don't run out. This is like constant, yeah. you know, you know, making sure that, you know, panic control type thing. Yep. And like, yeah, like you said, everything, you have special player powers, lots going on, easy to play, easy to teach, sale. And I, I will say, as I'm perfectly happy with all of these quirky trick takers, like Ghost of Christmas is is, is great. Uh, I like Paula, that, but that's back in the day. That's before that's by Jeffrey Allers and, and published over ten years ago. So definitely before the the current what I perceive to be the current wave since like you know 2015, 2016, of of cute and weird trick takers. A lot of cute and weird trick takers break open your brain about a whole bunch of weird stuff. Like even Marshmallow Test by Ryan Kinsey does that. It's like uh, okay, and there are these weird effects that seem to spiral out of control in a good way. Sale isn't like that. Sale is just like, oh, this is cute and clever. I understand how this works. <laughs> it doesn't require you to rewire any of these uh, received wisdom from trick-taking. And so it's nice to have that as another way to do clever trick-taking games without hurting your head. Maybe I'm just a dummy. I don't know. But that's <laughs> I, I appreciate it in a way that I in a different way from the other clever trick-taking games that I enjoy playing. Sale. Sale. We got burned back to the table. This is a upcoming game by John Moffat. It's a prototype game that was given to us by the designer. It's going to be coming out by Stone Circle Games. And it is all cards. So you play out the map that's cards. And then you have the director versus the spy. What's the director? The director's dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got grim. <laughs> it's all cards. Cards all the way down. Oh, but now, I, now the director's dead. <laughs> And so, and then, so the spy picks some equipment out and they start hiding around the different locations. If they switch uh, to a different color of location, they have to sort of announce it. Lots of interesting things going on. Very much enjoy Burned. So we, we actually played back-to-back Sale, General Orders, and Burned. And what each of these games did in a very satisfying way was demonstrate that you can have an arc you can have some give and take, and you can have a lot of clever mechanisms in about a 20 to 30 minute game. Our game of Burned was, if anything, shorter than that, because what happened was there was some initial setup, a, a turn or two of running around and, and, and jockeying a couple casualties taken on both sides. And then it got to a point where I, in hindsight foolishly, uh, made basically a 50-50 gambit and... Uh, Walker did not take up my 50-50 gambit and instead decided to go all in and won his gamble. And consequently, I was cornered and gunned down like the filthy spy that I was. 
And I do not regret it having gone down that way because what happened was I was trying to leverage some counterthink. I thought I knew what Walker would do. I had a plan and contingencies of that. And Walker's like, nah, I'm going to cut this Gordian knot. And for a very simple game that's going to play in 10 to 15 minutes, that's pretty good. That sounds pretty hot to me. And one of the things that I did not miss while playing Burned was the notion of playing a 90-minute game where there's there was only three rounds, an elaborate draft before all of them, and I have to play two cards in order just to be able to move across the other side of the map, referencing no beasts in particular. Yikes. Look, there are lots of games where the entire game is movement, right? A lot of hidden movement games are like that. But the point is, are you going to be focusing on the double think? Are you going to be focusing on the confrontations? Are you going to be focusing on the interesting bits? Or is it the case that much of your busy work is going to just be about getting from point A to point B, independent of trying to think about what point B should be? In Burned, that's what you're doing. You're mostly thinking about where you want to be, not how am I going to get there. And I, it was just, everything was laser focused and it was, it, it, it promises a fair degree of variety because there are different team. We, we've only been playing with the basic teams for the agency and some of the basic equipment for the spy, but there's lots of cool tricks and toys to, to be had. I'm very much looking forward to the published version of Burned. It's, it's for a hidden movement game, two players, 20 minutes. It, it gets a lot right. And I've, I've been thoroughly impressed. Burned. Burned. <laughs> I think that ends the monosyllabic games uh, of this week. Unless you've got some more. No. Okay, good. Okay. Burned. Burned. We played the penultimate round of My Island, designed Ooh, by Ryan Knizia. There's a word, penultimate. And published by Cosmos. And there's lots more stuff now. There's lots more stuff. Let me try to summarize, because we've been talking about My Island. We don't want to give spoilers. Uh Round about the middle of things, chapters three and four-ish, I'd say. Each chapter is three games. My recollection is, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I frequently mischaracterize your your feelings based on my misapprehending or misremembering what you said. You were waiting for things to get started, right? Is that fair? Yes, for see, sure. See, you nodding, Walker, doesn't help. But they can't see that? No, they can't see that. Oh, the, the spy cameras that they've implanted show uh, different areas of our life, uh, not actually okay. in the studio. Then things got started, and then I think, you, you know, both of our perceptions were that, that things were ramping up in a pleasing way. Where, what do you think about how things are now? Uh, a little too much. I think it's, it's turned into a little bit of a roll and write. It's more like of more just record keeping than, than playing, it seems to me. Uh, I, okay, I can see where you're coming from. I don't necessarily think it's that problem, but I do think it's gotten to be too much. So... There's a certain tension in a lot of Reiner Knizia games. You feel like you're being pulled in a lot of different directions. This is often the characteristic of quality decision-making, right? You know, through the desert, you need to cover all the bases at once. In Tigers and Euphrates, if you had three actions, you're convinced you could win the game. <laughs> all these manner of things. In my island, I feel like in Chapter 7, we got to the point where our shared suffering, the agony over wanting, trying to figure out how to place these tiles has really started, and I mean this sincerely, we've started lashing out at each other with a level of vitriol that I think is is outsized to our normal level of trash-talking because we all feel so abused by the game. Because the number of directions in which we are being pulled for every tile placement is now so myriad and so vast that you're not foreclosing three or four options with every tile placement. It feels like you're foreclosing six or seven. And so everybody now feels like they're just being punched in the face with every tile flip. Granted, it's balanced because we're all suffering equally, but the, the mood of the table's gotten grim. And my appreciation for the trade-offs that I had for chapters, you know, four, five, six, 
Now I feel like I agree with you. It's a little too much. I feel like we've kind of uh, jumped the shark is a strong term because I still it's still fabulously designed. It's, it's yes. a, you know it's a Reiner Knizzi design. It's got all its hallmarks. It's not as clean as it used to be in a way that I find a little unsettling, and I'm a little bit worried about what Chapter Eight's going to look like by virtue of some of the changes introduced in Chapter Seven. And also, for what it's worth, I feel like the overall arc and tempo of play sessions has gone off the deep end because sessions are getting longer and longer and longer, and the big rules changes are introduced at the beginning of a chapter. So what happens is, so you play three, so the way we've been playing, and kind of the way the, the rulebook suggests you play, is you open up a new envelope, you get new rules, you play three games back-to-back. Previous chapters, that was okay. But more and more, especially chapters 5, 6, and 7, and especially with 7 for me personally, what you have is a massive rules dump that you all have to process at the beginning of the chapter. Well, massive in comparison. It's not actually massive. But a fair amount of rules dump at the beginning. And then you play three games back-to-back that are roughly the same. So the first game is overwhelming, and then by the second and third game, you're like, eh, we're, can, can we can we space out the, the the innovations a little bit? And so it just feels herky-jerky, and we end up sp- spending like two and a half to three hours playing three games of My Island back-to-back. I'm sufficiently enthusiastic about My Island that I've played the game 21 times. There are lots of games that I wouldn't play a second time, let alone 21, but it's starting to wear. All these factors are adding up, and... Uh, Chapter 8 may be a little bit of a death march. I'm, I'm really excited for Chapter 8. Why is that, Walker? Because it's the last chapter. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. I'm, I, Chip the Third, to a certain extent, keeps suggesting it, I think, for two reasons. One of them is entirely legitimate. The other one, I can respect, but I don't know if I'm on the same board. One of them is, Chip the Third, if this is entirely reasonable, does not like having to process a new rule set every time he sits down to play games with us. That is 100% legit. And as I said before, when we were talking about Louie and Anachrony... I am very cognizant of the fact that we impose very heavy burdens to our fellow gamers in terms of this is the new thing we're talking about now. The second reason why he wants to complete this come hell or high water is he wants to, like, finish a legacy game. Eh. I, you know what? Do you know what there's a virtue to, Walker? Walking away. Yes. <laughs> now, I, I, I want to be perfectly clear. I haven't hated my island. This hasn't soured my experience. It's just I look back font more fondly at chapters four, five, and six-ish. Even chapters one, two, and three. Chapter seven felt like I was crossing a, a, a big boundary and I wasn't feeling it nearly so much anymore. I'm interested to see what eight will will with will dump out on us. Yeah, no kidding. It, the story has has been the story's interesting. Weird. Really, well, I think it's just weird and silly. Weirdly interesting. Okay, yeah, you know what I mean. It's just okay. like really. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, okay, okay. Could, yeah. So and. And I have one, you know, it'd be nice to finish it. You know what I mean? Like, okay. we've come so far. <laughs> and, we, and we've tried. But here, here, here's, here's something everyone I think should appreciate. There's a sublime beauty in just not. You don't have to. Let me, let me introduce a concept that is very important to remember both in economics and in real life. And that is sunk cost. <laughs> So, Mark, you see, when you're playing poker, yeah, you build a ladder out of chips, uh huh, and that will get you out of the pit. So, you, you, oh, okay, you just keep so if, dumping. If you're if you're down a few chip. hundred bucks that you can't afford, the point is to double down. Double down okay. every time. Okay, okay. I think that answers the sunk cost fallacy. Yeah, there you yeah. go. Yeah, you should you should write an economics paper. I agree. And that is my island by Reiner Knizia. Played a couple games of Bloodstones. This is designed by Martin Wallace and put out by Wallace Designs. Uh, I played the solo mission, and then we retried it again as a a competitive four-player. 
all of this was streamed. This coming Wednesday, I will be streaming the solo game again, the Mission 2, because it's a campaign. And it is an interesting puzzle when you're playing the solo mission. So it, it, it weeds out some of the problems because it turns it more into a puzzle game than than a painful <laughs> troops on a map game. And I would like to stress one thing that I don't think I was sufficiently explicit about in terms of my very negative reaction to Bloodstones, which I stand by 100% is that I do think that Bloodstones does not show its best qualities when played with five, which is what we did. I think that three or four is pushing it. Uh, probably three is about as high as you want to go. Maybe. Maybe even zero. More. I mean, I think the ideal player count is zero, but I could definitely see it being vastly better with two than it was with five. More than four in a minute. <laughs> so, <laughs> in the first solo mission, you, you have to, you're playing against the uh, Dragon Riders, and you have to kill the two dragons and they always retreat. And so it's this interesting puzzle of, of you cornering them or luring, even luring them out because they will advance into an empty village. So it's, it's a matter of putting out those or pushing the villages forward, getting them out. And Oh, wow. Really leaning on the weirdness of the fact that an empty village is not slim pickings. An empty village is an invitation for a trap. Just so. Oh my goodness. So you can sort of, and and the hill giants are sort of blocking off the top of the map. So you can sort of have a village up in that corner. So they're acting as a wall. And then, and then you put it the village, the dragon moves in and then you surround the dragon. So it can't retreat. And then you hope that you win the battle because surrounding is going to eat up most of your tiles. Sure. And then you try, and then it allows you to build right into that because you can build into the, into the village where it is. And then, so it's this interesting, you know, trying to win that. But then on Saturday, we streamed a four player game. And when you do a troops on the map game that will have multiple players, I really feel that the key to those games is the combat. If the combat is not fulfilling, then the game will fail. There is no, there is no stress to the attacker, right? There's no worrying about losses. You're going to go in and even if you lose, you're going to lose one tile. There's not this weird attrition. There's not this, I'm, you know, the defender might do really well. and I'm going to come out of this with a lot less troops. There's one person will be pushed back and they'll lose one tile. And that sort of unsatisfactory battle system does not run it for me. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if I'd prefer the battle system if the casualties were more pronounced. That might introduce other other issues, because I don't think that what Bloodstones would want is uh, a greater barrier to throwing your troops around. I mean, they're, they're already plenty baked into the system. I I wonder though, were the we had some concerns initially. I don't like to 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 kvetch too much about faction imbalance after one or two games unless it's truly egregious. We had some concerns both about the Chaos Horde and the Corsairs after our first game. Were either of those in the four player game? Well, because it's somewhere in the rule book it says not to play with the Chaos in your early game. So mm-hmm. we just, I just pulled those out. We did sure. not play with them. But the same sort of problem came with the Horse Lords. It just adds this. They get to see the Corsairs. Corsairs. Without going into the whole battle system, they just sort of very much mess with that battle system. And yes. It, it makes it even more unfulfilling. They are better at winning fights, and they get a bonus point every time they win a fight. The, the rules present presented as though, well, you know, they have this big handicap because they don't have any special units. But the special units, by and large, aren't particularly impressive, and there aren't many of them to begin with. So they, you know, 
even if that were a significant handicap, it's more than made up for by the fact that they get to effectively have clairvoyance. You know what a lot of blind bid combat systems where sometimes might get a special power where they get to see the combat results before they decide whether to allocate forces? That's what the Corsairs get to do. And so they get to they get to win fights very easily and or lose fights at no cost. Uh, they don't engage in pitch battles that they lose, so that might that might actually speak to your previous objection with Bloodstones, where the the, the battles generally feel toothless. But in in the game that we played, uh, Dewey played the Corsairs, and he just ran the table because he could not be uh, defeated effectively. So that's Bloodstones. If you're interested at all, you can check out the videos; they're on our YouTube page, and you can or you can tune in. It'll be every Wednesday. I'm Pretty sure I'm going to run through all of the scenarios in the solo book. We'll see. Okay. I'm going to give it a try. And Bloodstones was a review copy we got from the publisher. Those are the games we played last week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Mythic Games shenanigans news now. I'm accustomed to getting some news from Mythic Games in my mailbox because they basically write me a message every once in a while and saying, Hey, 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 I know we took a lot of your money, but, but could we have some more? For the things you already paid for? To which my response is, I've suffered enough having played Darkest Dungeon, leave me alone. But a couple of their projects, which were funded to the tune of seven figures on crowdfunding, specifically Anistir and Hell the Last Saga, have been acquired by Kulmini or Not. And Kulmini or Not has said, and this was this was pretty funny, very charitably, they said, well, we've, we've looked at their current status and... Uh, <clears throat> In their current stage of development, we don't think they're quite ready to be published. Reading between the lines, having played Darkest Dungeon, I could easily believe that. And so they're going to rework it. Now, it being reworked by Kulmini or Not's designers, sometimes that produces great results, sometimes not. So we'll see. To their credit, they have said that everybody who pledged for Enistir or Hell the Last Saga with Mythic will get a copy of the base game from Kulmini or Not whenever that thing happens to be ready. I have no doubt that Kulmini or Not will charge them for shipping, uh, but they're getting a base game, and as for stretch goals, sorry, <laughs> you bet on Mythic Games, you lose. So at least, they, I guess that's a bit of a silver lining to the cloud that is Anistir in Hell the Last Saga. Anistir almost tempted me, because it's basically Golden Axe, the board game, and I am very weak to side-scrolling beat-em-ups, and I love Golden Axe. The first one, not so much the second one. People love Revenge of Death Adder in the arcade version. It's okay. I think the magic system's busted. But anyway, little bit of ray of hope for backers of Anistir and Hell the Last Saga. This is your friendly reminder not to give Mythic Games money. So Renegade Games is going to put out a couple of Axes and Allies games. One I've already talked about it, but now there's more pictures and stuff out. It's G.I. Joe Battle for the Arctic Circle. There's going to be a G.I. Joe Axis and Allies? Yes. Oh, my goodness. And, Mark, hexagons are, in fact, the bestagons, so it's an Axis and Allies game using hexagons. Walker, we're, and... we're several minutes into this episode. I'm amazed that you were able to talk or think about anything else in the intro. I know. <laughs> Didn't you see me jittering here? I know, I know. <laughs> so this is going to be designed by Matt Hyra. Oh. I, I look through his, his – he has done some frightening things. <laughs> but he has done some wonderful things, like like World of Warcraft, the miniature game. Yes, Matt Hyra is a very solid designer who is frequently co contracted out for licensed stuff, and I'd have to say that it is usually at least decent. And he's done a lot of work with the GI Joe deck building game, which yes. I, I very much like. So I am I'm definitely going to get a copy of GI Joe 
Battle for the Arctic Circle. Yeah, I don't know great. if I'm ever going to get it played, but <laughs> I, 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 I'd play a GI Joe troops on a map. But, but look, looking up on the shelf and seeing it there is just enough for me. But yes, if you want to play it, then is we'll this going to be two player or multiplayer? Multi. Uh, is, well, I think it'll be very much like Axe and Allies, right? It's it's two sides but multiple players. Yeah, but okay. So the world World War Two. I'm not a historian, but natural factions present themselves. Yes. In the G.I. Joe universe, to my mind, two factions present themselves. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you could get to, like, the snake people as, like, a sec. I don't know. It's it's a whole thing. I'm glad you're enthusiastic. Sounds promising. Could be a good time. Well, it will be two to four players, so we'll see how they divide it up. The other Axe and Allies game. So it's something they've, they, they, in the past, they've had quite a few. They had, like, Battle of the Bulge, Pacific. So this is one. Canal. Guadalcanal, this is one they have not done before. This is going to be North Africa. And it's going to have, even have two different scenarios in the box. So that's kind of interesting. So I'm not sure. It might be a little World War II doubt. <laughs> might be even a little Axe and Ally doubt. Sure. Because uh, I, I did keep my World War One copy because I really enjoyed that. But this is also done by Matt Hyra. Also back in will be Larry Harris. Junior, the original yes. designer of Axe and Allies. So he's worked on this as well. This is also by Renegade Studios. So I'll have to wait and see. Fascinating. So uh, bad news from social media, which is kind of redundant and repeating myself. Uh, proof positive that the fact that we've effectively sold public discourse to a bunch of corporations who do not have our best interests at heart. And I do not throw that accusation around lightly. I am usually more than happy to shell out money to our corporate overlords in exchange for toys and various other services. But sometimes it, it, they don't even do a good enough job of fooling me into thinking that it's a good transactional relationship. So, Fort Circle Games, publisher of the excellent design Votes for Women, designed by Tori Brown. They had a Kickstarter campaign for the reprint. We talked about this in the show and in Pledge of Indifference. And they were posting ads for this, as one does. And one of the places they decided to post ads was, of course, Facebook, because that's what you do. The ads got bounced because the ads were related to a controversial social issue. This is a game about extending the suffrage to women. And it got bounced and pulled from the Facebook platform because it's a controversial, contentious social issue. This, Walker is why we can't have nice things. I don't know if this was an automated bot or if this was some douche nozzle online who actively flagged it. In either case, I have serious doubts about public discourse going forward. And I didn't have a whole lot of optimism about public discourse for this either, especially since much of public discourse is occupied by people yelling at cans and using words like douche nozzle. But even we wouldn't be so stupid and so retrograde as to say, oh, letting women vote? Oh, that's a hot... Keep politics out of our board games. That's too spicy. Yeah, and to generalize this, this is exactly why I have zero patience for the let's keep politics out of board games nonsense. That game about colonialism you're playing is making a political statement. And when you say that it isn't, you're part of the problem. All of these things are political statements. To generalize even further, this is also part of the same issue. It's like, oh, well, now I have to worry about everything I say. That's being an adult. Being an adult is being conscious of what you say and what culture you consume and what values are being pushed to you. And if you look at Votes for Women by Fort Circle Games and think that there's anything controversial there, then you have a serious problem as it relates to women's suffrage. Now, if you want to start talking about a specific presentation of history, about the various d discussions about the 15th Amendment and other things, 
Sure, fine, we can have that discussion. But the appropriate recourse to that discussion is not pulling the ads from Facebook because it's a contentious social issue. Also, uh, Tory Brown's a great designer and Fort Circle Games is a great publisher and you should play votes for women. Mark, on our uh, Pledge of Indifference, where we talk about crowdfunding projects, we talked about Carol Lingi, an area majority bag builder. And so they pulled it off of GameFound. Yes. They did not get the funding. That they were, or the advancement of the funding wasn't to their liking. Yeah, it's a classic case where, you know, we had a funding goal and maybe we'd reach it, maybe we didn't, but the pace is so slow that we're not going to do it. So now they're going to refocus their, their efforts and they're going to be doing a pre order from the, the Sea Cove game website. So we'll have to check that out there. I confess I'm not shocked that it, that it didn't set crowdfunding on fire. One of the things that we talked about on Pledge of Indifference was how much it looked like a throwback, both visually and in terms of uh, d- overall design aesthetics. That's one of the reasons why I pledged for it. <laughs> I was very enthusiastic about this kind of throwback type thing, uh, but sadly it did not get the market they wanted for it, uh, but I am very much hopeful that it will hit the market eventually. On the topic of uh, Eurogames, Seven Empires from Matt Gertz. Matt Gertz is one of is the designer of some of my absolute favorite Euro games, uh, both Antica and Imperial. In both of their versions, are my top ten games of all time. His upcoming design is called Seven Empires, and it's kind of sort of within striking distance of a riff on Imperial. In that, there are going to be the eponymous Seven Empires, and they're not the one taking turns, but you have various investments in them. Not strictly monetary, but you have various influence in these various empires, and that lets you pull their various. Levers. Players are taking turns in Seven Empires as opposed to Imperial, where the nations are taking turns. But nonetheless, you're going to have this dynamic of having proxy wars and having vassal states and exerting influence over various empires. Uh, There's a whole bunch of fascinating stuff about Seven Empires. One of them is that the empires are not going to be purely symmetrical. Some of them just start out stronger, but you get fewer points for quote-unquote winning with those empires as a consequence. So you can attempt to, you know, double down. And if you can win with, say, Prussia, which is not one of the stronger ones, you're going to do better. And the, the various ways that turn order works and how, as a player, what empire you can activate as when looks fascinating. But I have yet to play a Mackerts game that didn't have at least a couple fascinating elements in it. And I'm very, very much looking forward to Seven Empires from Mackerts. Uh, full disclosure, in the past, I have helped with some rulebook translation and some playtesting with Mackerts designs. Lastly, for me, we only played Star Trek Away Missions once, but I very much want to get it back to the table. It does some very interesting things, much like Shadespire. But it leads Warhammer Underworlds. Warhammer Underworlds. I keep getting that mixed up. Uh, Yeah, well, it's a dumb series of names anyway, so. It's true. But it leans much more heavily on the mission. So a little bit of the combat, but a lot more of manipulating the terrain and your troops and having them in the right area. So they're bringing out more units, Mark. They're going back to the original series. So now you can have Kirk and Spock. Oh, wow. So it's two box sets. I'm not sure why they had it divided up into two. Maybe there's too many main characters. So Scotty is going to lead a a group. Don't ask me. Scotty is going to lead an away team. I, I, I don't ask me. I Interesting. I, and then you know there will be the Kirk and Spock one. So so maybe they That's should. So they better. Weird. I hope they're making uh, about 15 times as many as the Kirk <laughs> Spock ones as the other ones. But this 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 does get me excited for a reason because after we had played. That the one game and and I bought the some Klingons to try out. I always thought, man, I really wish that they bring out the Gorn. Really, right? 
And I said, oh, well, they're doing... You the know, lizard dude from yeah. the rock fight. Well, yeah, they're always my favorite. I used to play uh, the spaceship game. Was It was called Star Frontier. There was a Star Trek. There was Starfleet Battles. Starfleet that Battles. Was the, I the played a lot of... Sprawling... I, long, like, a lifetime ago, uh-huh. played Starfleet Battles. Okay. Loved the Gorn ships. Oh, they were an entire playable faction there. They were. Oh, wild. Okay. And, uh... And so I was kind of, I was like, oh, but they're doing next generation stuff. So they're not going to, you know, there's no sure. Gorn. There. And then now they're doing the original series. So maybe, maybe. <laughs> That's a deep I can, cut. I can, I can dream that there'll be an, a, a Gorn unit. And I can hope that someday they'll have a Darmok and Jalada Tanagra scenario. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. They do have like a, uh, they do have like a, is it like a tournament scenario or they do have like a, a Q box that you can get that, that is like sort of like an event scenario type thing. Why didn't you get that? That sounds awesome. I'm not 100 percent sure. I'm, I'm, it might be because it's like the you know the the blood rage sort of tournament box that is very hard to get. So maybe it's not something you can order. I'll look into it. Such a waste. Star Trek Away missions. That is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now we're going to take a brief break and pay some bills. It's great that ExpressVPN protects your privacy and security online, but you can also use ExpressVPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. It's so simple, even a gibbon could do it. ExpressVPN lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from over 100 different countries. I've been using ExpressVPN to check out Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance on South Korean Netflix, Friends and the American version of The Office on UK Netflix, Back to Canada for Sound of Metal, and Luxuriating in the One and Only Tim Riggins with US Netflix and Friday Night Lights. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service. Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but the reason I love ExpressVPN is because it is so fast and unobtrusive. It also works on all your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So if you want to get access to hundreds of new shows, use my link right now, expressvpn.com slash games, and you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash games. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money at when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we're back. Now on to the topic of the week, which is Dexterity Games Revisited. Walker, do you have thoughts and feelings about Dexterity Games? I do. I'm glad to hear that. And I'm not sure if we covered this the first time, you know, several hundred years ago when we did this uh, segment. But As the Earth's still cool. I do want to talk about accessibility to Dexterity Games. Sure. And I always want to make sure that, you know, we say that it's unfortunate that some people cannot ma- manipulate the pieces. 100%. As a, but there's some games, like For Science, that we'll talk about later, that incorporates a different way to play it that will help some people enjoy these type of games. So is I'm we're not blind to the fact that some people are un 
That's a strange choice. That's an unfortunate choice of words, Walker, in the context of accessibility. Uh, no, I, I, I would, I would put it the same way. It's just when we're talking about accessibility, talking about throwing around the word blind, we are, we are not ignorant of the concerns. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, it's just minor, not, not a criticism, just a minor observation. It's just a strange, uh, strange coincidence. Yeah, no, and I agree. I've played with uh, dexterity games with people with various palsies that have uh, been unable to stack, but have been able to flick. And that's one of the weird things. I talked about this a few weeks ago in the context of dexterity games, because to my mind, they form a, this is again, pointing to the endless discussions we have about taxonomies, which always seem to prop up despite my best efforts to run away from them. And now, of course, being the hypocrite that I am, I'm introducing the topic. To my mind, they form a natural set, dexterity games. But to a lot of people, they quite rightly differentiate very strongly between, well, in this game, you stack, and in this game, you drop, and in this game, you flick. And I have known some people with various forms of disabilities, like I said, various forms of palsies that could do one but not the other or couldn't do any of them. But I agree with you 100%. It doesn't surprise me at all that Eric Royce, being the man of character that he is, when designing his game, thought, how can I make this as accessible as possible? And he did so. So it is excellent that you call out for science for that purpose. All right. So now, like I usually do, you said we're going to do dexterity games. So now I must mutate and twist that. Into I think there's two uh, ways to look at that, Mark. Okay. There's dexterity games, uh-huh. and then there's dexterous games. Oh, my goodness. What are we doing? I don't know. I'm excited. All right. So I Take feel, me further. I feel that there is another category Do you have here. a pamphlet? I do. So dexterous games, uh-huh. I feel, would be games like Project Elite and Rush MD. Oh, okay. Right? Sure, sure. Where it's, it's part of the game is not specifically dexterous, but doing that part of the game, you need to be dexterous. Like, yeah, to yeah, roll yeah. those dice very quickly, yeah. to manipulate those figures without knocking them over, getting them to the right spaces, and doing these things quickly. So pretty much any real-time game, basically. Uh, well, no, there, I have other ones here. Hand-to-hand Wombat, I would not consider, even though it, it is timed, but it's not, you know, time-timed. You know, you know what I'm saying. I, I, I'm afraid I don't Same thing. I, I think Tumbling Dice, I, in a way, it's a flicking game, but, you know, you can use, you can do it any way you want. Piazza. Sorry, which category are you putting? This is all, all of these are dexterous games. Okay, why is uh, Tumbling Dice a de- dexterous game and not a dexterity game? Well, because most In this taxonomy. Because you don't have to flick it. You can, you know, slide it or put, you know, you can you, you can do it however you want. It was just... I, look, I'm totally with you with Project Elite, all right? 100%. Yes. Because you're not really being evaluated in terms of performing a physical act well, but in order to play the game well, if you are better at doing the physical act, you will end up getting dividends of it. Like if you're playing Kalis or if you're playing Antika, how good you are at putting the putting your pawn in the right space don't matter because someone else can move it there for you and that doesn't make any difference. But re- any all these real-time games, even real-time Euros, uh, you know, Pendulum, uh, Time of Empires, you name it, there's kind of a dexterity element because the, the, the better you do it. Tumbling Dice is where you lose me on the distinction. Tumbling Dice for me is squarely in the dexterity game. Bucket. I suppose. But I'm just, I just thought, you know, you don't have to flick it. You can just sort of like throw it or roll it. And it just didn't like fall into like sort of the stacking, flicking. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, I, I guess I just have a more, I have a less parsimonious taxonomy of the different kinds of acts that you might do in the context of a dexterity game. Mm. Like take, for example, my favorite dexterity game of all time, Loop and Louie. In Loop and Louie, what you're doing is you're just hitting a button. You're, you're pressing a plunger, right? But it's not, you know, it's an analog plunger, so it depends on how you do it, the speed, blah, 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 the timing, all manner of other things. There's, a, there's, there's actually a fair, fair amount to it, but it doesn't fall neatly into stacking or flicking either. And then there's Fuse. 
It is another timed yep, game, but real time game, yeah. And then Kabuto Sumo is just sort of like a weird thing, right? It is. It's not a dexterity game. It's not, you know what I mean? It's, it's I don't its know. Thing. It may well be. I'm not sure. It's it's definitely uh, it's definitely gamifying an act that other games don't, right? It's gamifying a process or an act that is typically not seen in other games, but nonetheless is seen in well other board games. But nonetheless, there are various carnival games, and and there's that weird uh, coin-operated game, which is about pushing things. Although usually you put in a coin, it launches it onto a platform, and then there's this anyway. It's a whole thing. Uh, I was. This is an interesting distinction. I don't know if I fully grasp it. So, okay, let's talk about let's talk about another example. Let's talk about one of Reiner Knizia's few dexterity games, Viking Seesaw. Which one do you put it there? Is that a dexterity? Yeah, well, that's definitely stacking. So that's definitely stacking. Yeah, it would be dexterity. Weird, because if anything, I th- I look at a game like Viking Seesaw, and I think it's less of a dexterity game. I kind of put it in the same category to a certain extent as Kurzvor Knop. In the, and I, sorry, I say it slowly because I keep wanting to say Vaughn, but I know it's not Vaughn. Because in Kurzvor Knop, you're judging distances much of the time. It's less about speci- you know the dexterity of actually placing the thing and more about judging where it should go, which isn't quite dexterity for me for reasons that I'm not really able to define. So it belongs in the same category as Viking Seesaw, where you have to decide where should this object go because you don't want to tip things over. Uh, as com- and uh, similarly with uh, the category of uh, Tokyo Highway, which is, again, very much about judging distances and sort of an abstract, as compared to another game which is superficially similar but in practice very different, which is to say Riff Raff, which is a glorious dexterity game with a massive wooden pirate ship. And part of it is judgment, but part of it is also just the dexterity of hanging it properly. Because when playing Viking Seesaw, to me, the, the point of failure is more I misjudged what I placed or where I'm placing it, not I... I messed up in the physical placement of it. Anyway. Yeah, I misjudged the weight. Right. Lastly, in that category, I have tapple. You have to smash the plastic thing <laughs> in, in the center of the table right. in such a way that it doesn't shatter, but in a way that you'll hit the letter that you no, want. I th- well, no, no, no. Look, I, I read the rules to tapple. I remember very distinctly uh, that the designer was a Bruce Banner, and he said that tapple smash. Tapple smash. Tapple smash. And the, jo- the goal of tapple is to hit it as hard as humanly possible, right? You win then. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I definitely agree with you. Any real-time game that is not nominally a dexterity game has these dexterity elements. Related to this is a fascinating category, which is very, very small, and I don't feel like it's growing very quickly, but I wish it would grow more quickly, which is the hybrid games, which is to say straightforward strategy games or various forms of straightforwardness that have a dexterity element. So there's Space Cadets, which was very goofy, but there were non-dexterity rolls as well as dexterity rolls. Rolling Heights, our favorite element of Rolling Heights, is the surprise endgame module of dexterity. And similarly, there's a game which I haven't played with you that I keep meaning to pull out again called Dragon Valley, which was an I-split-you-choose game. And the most time-consuming element of I-split-you-choose games is often the splitting, because it's agonizing. And the way Dragon Valley works is while the person is thinking about what to split, the people who are waiting for the split play a real-time dexterity game and score very small quantities of points in the process, thereby incentivizing a fast split. Yeah, I have this category at the end as well, but and my my would be uh, Carnival Zombie. Yes. Right? You're playing this like intense tower defense zombie game where the cool zombies are coming thing, in yeah. and you're rolling dice to shoot. And then when you kill zombies, you have to pick them up. And you have to drop them on this boat. 
and any zombies that fall off the boat go back onto the board. It's such a fantastic part of the I game. Still have, I have a copy of Carnival Zombie 2nd Edition. I've tried to read that rulebook about four or five times. I'm not saying it's a terrible rulebook. I just, for whatever reason, I cannot grok the thing. And consequently, we've never played it. But anyway, I wish more games did this. I realize why they don't. It is a super niche proposition. Incredibly niche. And I think it's a it, it's really a shame that in both of the in two of the cases I talked about, Rolling Heights and Dragon Valley, the dexterity element was exclusively a Kickstarter promo thing, and not really presented with with a great deal of confidence. If I had designed Rolling Heights, if I were John DeClaire, or if I were AEG, I would lead with that. It's like it's a city building game where then you destroy it in a dexterity game with a giant mo- <laughs> monster monkey meeple. But I feel that that might drive away the core audience. What can I say? That's right. Let's talk about some actual, not actual, let's talk about <laughs> dexterity games <laughs> that we very much enjoy. Yeah, I've got uh, a top four here that are like pretty much my all-time favorites. Ooh, I have a little punch. All right. Oh, I've got let's more go that to... I can talk about, but in terms of my absolute, absolute favorites. All right. The only game that matters, let's go right to the top. Yep. The only game that matters is Seal Team Flex. Yeah, see, that that also is a hybrid dexterity game uh, that is very, very much of a niche and it even has side dexterity games, yeah. right? It's, yeah. It's, it's it's like what Space Cadets wanted to be, in and in, to a certain extent. I cannot wait for Phantom Division. Oh, my goodness. So Seal, Seal Team Flicks are these pre-glued together maps that are subway well, stations. Well, pre-glued together because Mark assembled them for you, sir. What? Oh, they don't come like that? No. So you, and there's subway stations, <laughs> you have airports, you have uh, hotels, and you are a Seal Team uh, where you move per square. So that part is not dexterous. Move right. The movement part. You're moving your pawn around. The enemies are also the same. They are not dexterous in their movement. They move, to, <laughs> yeah. they move around to certain points. And the AI is very good. And indeed, that, that element is very, very, very tactical. Where do you want to be? Where are they going to go? Etc. Now, the dexterity part comes when you're shooting your guns. You put a bullet, I guess, a bullet, quotation marks, beside your pawn, and you flick it down the hallway. And yeah, see, it's not really, it's not a real are, bullet. It's not a real hallway. Either. No, it's scientific. It, 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 these rubber bullets, because you can bounce them off. <laughs> yeah, the, exactly. You can bounce them off the walls. <laughs> you can hit multiple uh, enemies. All sorts of fun stuff. It's worth noting that the the key downside, I think, to Silting Flex is the uh, there, there's a couple of very natural rules misinterpretations, and so I would I almost never do this. I would point people to our YouTube channel where I do a full rules explanation, and I I, I emphasize the commonly misunderstood rules at least as I perceive them. And then we do a, a live playthrough. Uh, Seal Team Flex is, is glorious. It's such a shame that it didn't get more up, up uh, uptake than it did. But then again, as I say, these are highly niche environments. That's just something else I would like to talk about. The people who think they're too good for dexterity games. But anyway, that'll, that'll come later. And then, like I said, there's the side games where you're like diffusing bombs. Or failing if, to diffuse Or you're bombs. the sniper. You're like, have a little sideboard where you I'm can so hit sorry. targets. I'm so sorry I failed that mission for us, Walker. Oh, Mark. I still feel bad we about were it. so close. Eh, not really. <laughs> I just messed up. <laughs> I feel bad. Then there's a game that we've been playing a lot of lately, uh, Catch the Moon. Yes. It's a great, it's these uh, wooden ladders. They have a jumbo edition. Uh, we had a listener very nicely gave me a copy. You're stacking these rickety ladders in different ways. It creates this very cool looking diorama of ladders. Could we have a, a brief sub-discussion about an issue that I find fascinating in dexterity games? And that is that I find the jumbo editions of some dexterity games to feel almost like they're different games entirely. So Catch the Moon feels 
really different when you're playing the jumbo version. The same thing is true of Rhino Hero. The base version of Rhino Hero I'm not a huge fan of, but the jumbo version is glorious. I prefer Rhino Hero Super Battle, but Rhino Hero, the base version with the, the jumbo, is really, really cool. I want there to be jumbo versions of all of my favorite dexterity games. Possible exception of For Science. I don't think a jumbo For Science would work very well. <laughs> it's all to do with the weights, right? More weight, and it'll like catch better. It, yeah. Yeah. What else you got, Mark? Okay, so my all-time favorite dexterity game that is not a hybrid like... Seal Team Flex, the only game that matters, is probably Junk Art. Just by virtue of, and we talked about this the first time we talked about, every time we talk about Junk Art, basically. The pieces are so well engineered for play. And you're constantly finding new ways for them to fit together. Uh, the other the other ones that I absolutely adore are Paku Paku, my favorite discovery of the past couple of years. Because, you know, it, it's, it's real-time dice rolling, which already, as you observed, feels like a dexterity game. And then you get the visceral satisfaction of multiple stacks. Like your common dexterity game sometimes has a problem with an arc, right? The first few placements, it's all boring. There's not an interesting structure visually or aesthetically or or in a tactile way. And then eventually it gets to a point where it all spectacularly collapses and then you're done. Paku Paku, you get to do that multiple times. True. I think, I think there's, there's a reason to emphasize that there, the, the, End game of a lot of dexterity games falls apart. Yeah, like absolutely, not just literally and figuratively. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, Multiple rounds and, are the way to go. And yeah. lots of times it's very unrewarding where they yep. they couldn't quite figure out how to end this yep. or the scoring it just doesn't matter, so you don't do it. Yep. But yes. So, absolutely. So Paku Paku really does a great job on that. And rounding out the uh, the, the trifecta of pure dexterity games, pureish that I think are my favorite is Crash Octopus by Itten. It is definitely the cutest. I mean, Paku Paku is adorable, and Junk Art looks kind of cool once you start stacking stuff. But Crash Octopus is just so visually delightful. And I'm I'm a massive fan in the way they do player targeting in Crash Octopus. You're like bouncing a die off of an octopus's head, trying to knock over your your, your friend's boat. And then, of course, there's For Science, which is just absolutely glorious in terms of both the way that it you feel like you're reinventing stacking every time, looking at these very simple shapes and figuring out new ways for them to connect, and the fact that, look, it's a dexterity game for people who hate dexterity games. It's true. If, if you're playing with a big enough group, and that big enough might even be three or four, and you don't want to stack anything, you don't have to stack anything. Yeah. There is a role for you there. You get a little uh, spatial puzzle that you get to figure yeah. out with tiles, and... All sorts of help building cards so you get to be the tyrant and say, I have built this cure for you. You go stack it now. I've never done that. I have one here that is one of my favorites because it's so different than everything else. This is called Ghost Adventure. Yes. And what you do with this, you spin a top on this triple layered board that's double sided and it's sort of like a little maze and you're. And so you spin the top and now you have this board in your hand and you're tilting it back and forth and you're jumping it up onto different levels and you're trying to make so it doesn't fall through holes. You got to complete this mission. You have to move the top in a certain direction and hit certain goals. And then not only that, if you, if you're fast enough, you can grab the next board that comes in the mission and you sort of slide the top onto the starting and try to hit as many goals as you can and then pass it on to the next player and they spin. What a great little game. 
ghost adventure. The toy factor for... This is honestly... It can't be stressed enough. One of the reasons why I adore Dexterity Games is it gives designers and publishers and players a chance to play with new stuff. A chance to to really lean into the toyetic nature of board games. I defy... Like, there are some board gamers, I'm sure, who derive zero pleasure and care not at all for the physical manifestation of whatever it is they're doing. I think most of us, to some degree would rather things be interesting visually or tactilely, right? And Dexterity Games are really an opportunity to go wild with this. Ghost Adventure and Slide Quest are two kid-friendly Dexterity Games that really lean into this and are just a joy to look at and manipulate. They're both very hard uh, once you get to the later missions. Slide Quest starts out super easy. Yes. Uh, Ghost Adventure starts pretty hard and gets way harder. And point of fact, that may make it less child-friendly. But I've never played it with a kid. I don't know how good they are. They might be better than our aged aged arms. But Slide Quest and Ghost Adventure also share another salient feature, which is as co-op dexterity games, they require a very strange form of cooperation. In that in Slide Quest, you're all manipulating this board and trying to tilt it the same way. And Ghost Adventure, when you're playing multiplayer, the handoff. <laughs> so I've got a board with a spinning top on it, and Walker's got the next board. I need to tilt the top onto his board. It's shockingly difficult, but very rewarding. Yes. So Hamster Roll is a fantastic looking thing. I have yet to play it, but it's it's to be coming to crowdfunding again very soon. I actually have a list of cool looking dexterity games that I haven't played that I want to play. So, so weird, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> Hamster, Hamster Roll is yours. I played Hamster Roll. It's really cool. I have a few here. It's, yeah. Really hard to transport and store <laughs> because it's a large wooden uh, uh, structure, but there you go. Ones I want to play. Mm-hmm. What do we got? Well, Mars Open Tabletop Golf. You have this. I've yet to play it. I want to give it a try. It was disappointing. Oh. I'm sorry. <laughs> and there's one called, I don't even know how to say, Cerbuto. It's oh, Subut- Subuto? I have heard it said Subuteo. Subuteo. I've it, also heard it said other ways. I really want to try it too. It yeah. is, is a football or soccer yes. flicking all of the players on the map. It just looks great. Part of the problem is there's a billion different editions because sometimes they're up to date with their licensing. It's you know, it's kind of like saying, I want to try playing video game Madden. It's like, okay, well, what year? <laughs> So well, yeah, the lucky part about this is they all play the same. They'll just look different than all right. The but sometimes there's different materials. Like like true. this is an entire sub hobby, right? There are people deep into this lore, and one of the reasons why I haven't really pursued to get a copy in trade is I don't know what to go get. Oh, and plus it just does not exist in North America. That too, but <laughs> yes. Uh, so there are uh, two Haba games that I have seen played that I very much like to try. One of them is Castle Knights. It is a co-op game where you have these awkward bands that you're manipulating to try to pick up an object collaboratively and move it to the right place. There's Akaba, which has a whole bunch of incredibly reductive stereotypes of people on magic carpets, but the magic carpets are kind of a sponge material. And what you do is you have these bellows that blow on them and you're trying to blow them into the right place. Yeah. Apparently it's not that great, but I definitely want to try it. I've seen it played. Uh, I desperately, you know, then there are a couple uh, that aren't out yet. I desperately want to play Phantom Division. I desperately want to try Tiny Laser Heist, which was crowdfunded. We we backed that. And um, Tokyo Highway Rainbow City, we have a review copy coming to us from the people at Tanuki Games, and we should be getting that sometime this week. So I'm looking forward to trying that, too. The only thing I want to ask you about is you have Ascending Empires. I do. Is there not a second edition that came with a a map or something? No, there is talk. Uh, There is a reprint 
and a redevelopment that is coming sometime, we are told. In the in the smoky future. Yes. Anyway, Ascending Empires is a flicking space game that I we've played I we played together once long ago and I remember very much enjoying it. Except the unfortunate part is yeah. that it is a puzzle board, so there's lots of seams, seams yeah. and, and you're flicking uh those crystal gems. I don't really I don't know how else to say it. Well no that that that, that was my house solution actually. Oh gotcha. Because in the the game is published and it was one of the first hybrid dexterity games, so naturally it has a, a warm place in my heart. You were only flicking spaceships. And my board is in well was in reasonably good shape, but there were a couple of seams that were really bad, and so it was actually the worst of all possible worlds because everyone would have a different difficulty based on where they were sitting, and consequently, one of the suggested house solutions to this is when you are flicking across a seam, you can replace the the wooden starship token with one of those glass beads because they have additional weight, so they can kind of slide over those seams without going haywire. That actually is one of the reasons why there are some dexterity games I can't play as much as I would like to. For example, again, one of my favorite hybrids is a sort of hybrid tabletop miniatures dexterity game. I think more need to do this, right? So there's um, Flick'em Up Dead of Winter. There's Flick'em Up the first one, of course, but I prefer the Dead of Winter version. does very, very interesting things with the co-op zombie ma- movement. Rules are sloppy, but whatever. It's a co-op. Just hash something out and keep going. I'm not, I'm not often that laissez-faire, but with co-ops, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. There's Tactica, which I have, but I've never played. It's a two-player war game-ish thing where you're flicking military units around. And, of course, there's Flick Fleet, which has so many of the joys of tabletop miniatures gaming as well as so many of the joys of dexterity gaming. The problem is that my table, I have a beautiful gaming custom board game table with the leaves that you remove, and then underneath there's a depression where you... Sink all your darkest hopes and feelings. No, wait. Uh, Where there's a velveteen-covered soft surface so you can leave a game set up and put the leaves on top of it. The problem is there's a seam between the leaves and so you can't flick across the leaves. I really need to get a large neoprene playmat that's preferably just black, but I've never gotten around to do that. Anyway. So some quick ones that I haven't talked about yet. Love Catacombs. It is like a dungeon-delving flicking game. You need to really, you know, sort of rein it in. But very fun. There is Monera. That is a great sort of same thing. You know, it, it, the, the end falls apart. It yeah. just doesn't know. Sonora. I'd like to get another game of Sonora in. Ah, yes. This, the flicking right. Yeah, the flicking right. You're, yeah. You're, you're, Sonora's good stuff. Bad rep. Much and, much enjoyed. And I guess that... I guess Looney Quest could fall into that hundred percent that that earlier category. Where yeah, is it a dexterity game? Is it not a dexterity game? But definitely want to get more Looney Quest in. What you're doing is you have this piece of melamite that just is just clear, and you can see where you need to trace your line. There's like these bombs and traps, right? And then do you still get to look at it or is it flipped down and you just got to do it completely blind? Depends on how hard the difficulty is. Depends on the scenario. But yeah, most of the time you get to see it. So you look at it, but you can't put it over top of it. So off to the side on this blank piece of plastic, you have to draw your path through the maze. Yeah. And then you put it on top to see how well you did or sorry, how well you did. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah, that chance. How, how poorly you screwed it up. Well, there's also the harder version where what you do underneath, you don't put it on, you don't draw on a transparency that's over nothing. You put a deliberately obfuscatory sort of weird grid pattern underneath uh. to really confuse you. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why I really, really, really like the Dungeon Scrawlers games. They're basically dexterity games, kind of, yeah. uh, but but not really. 
Yeah, this 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 hybrid area of like again finding new ways to do cool stuff. I mean, that's one of the joys of being a hardcore hobbyist, and this is one of the reasons actually why I I find it so strange to encounter hardcore hobbyists that just really have no interest in any dexterity games. Like part of the joy of the hobby for me is seeing designers get clever and find new ways to approach issues, whether that issue is turn order or how to do multiplayer conflict or a new way to do auctions, or, hey, here's a new fun thing we can do with cards and pens. Well, that's what we have coming up. Remember, we have that Dungeon Delver where you're yes. moving miniatures through the dungeon, so that, there's no dexterity there, but the combat part of it is totally going to be a dexterity. Yep, yep, yeah. this weird flicking thing off to the side. Yep. Yeah, glorious. Yeah, so, I mean, going forward, I, I'm, I'm very optimistic. Like the, the dexterity market is surprisingly well-supported, and I'm very much appreciative of that, and we're seeing the, the envelope being pushed all the time. I do, however, have two specific requests. One of them is that there are a couple of designers that I really wish would start designing more dexterity games. One of them is Reiner Knizia. He has very few dexterity games. He has one with, like, ice cubes or something that is almost impossible to track down that I've never played. And he has uh, a Viking Seesaw, which is okay. Uh, I think it's time for David Thompson to design a dexterity game. Yeah, get on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, collaborate with Sinfin Lim or whoever else you want and uh, make us a dexterity game. He he has, in the past, expressed the fact that he has wasted his life by listening to this podcast once or twice. So uh, if you're listening, David, Mr. Thompson, yeah, Davey. I, I think that's a big market. I don't think there's many <laughs> World War II dexterity games oh, out there. Ooh, that could go sideways real quick. Ooh, boy. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily endorse that specifically, but yeah, I mean, look, he's designed a narrative game, a, a choose your adventure narrative game with lots of text. Uh, what's the next frontier? Dexterity. Exactly. Get on it. Uh, and the other thing is, um, and I confess this is my fault, and this I think is a good way to close out this topic. I have been remiss. I used to be the high priest of Lupin Louie. I had to hand in that title. I, I was, I had the most logged plays of Lupin Louie of anyone on Board Game Geek. I have since lost that privileged position, and I would have had to have been defrocked anyway since I traded in the High Priest of Louis to become the Prophet of Rage. I have not yet introduced Lupin Louis to Kingston. I'll tell you why. Two reasons. Number one, uh, after the flood, the batteries in my Lupin Louis leaked, and so I need to get a replacement. <laughs> Number one. Number two, uh, it's it's hard. It's hard. Like, there's a certain credibility check that you undergo when you're like, hey, everybody, let's play with this kid's toy. And I remember very distinctly the night that I first tried Lupin Louie. And I remember that sense of panic all those years ago when it's like, hey, everybody, you just finished your serious frowny train game. You're done playing Baltimore and Ohio. Let's try Lupin Louie. And they're like, what? At the time, I had the confidence. I've not yet had the confidence to do this in Kingston. <laughs> but I think it needs to be done. <laughs> part, of, part of it is we're seldom at four players. And four players is we're, we're often at three, we're often at five. Uh, but we're seldom at four for a variety of reasons. I just need to get on it. I, I would like to apologize to the great Lupin One in the Sky from the failure of me to spread his gospel. My life is empty, Mark. And I think that in the afterlife, my biplane will not be read. Oh. Such is the fate of those who do not proselytize the great Lupin One. I've sinned against Louis. You didn't loop the Louis, Mark. I didn't. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information and a whole bunch of silly lore at SoWrongGames.com. We read everything you send us and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for spending some time with us. We hope to see you again soon, and please do take care. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. 
You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.